Hi, welcome to Bookie. Today we will unlock the book The Design of Everyday Things. When speaking about the concepts behind proper design, you may feel as if they are not only far away from the current realities of your life, but that this would be something only designers would care about. However, this is not the case. In fact, design is quite relevant to our lives. Every day, we come into contact with countless objects, such as electric lights, water faucets, and household appliances. Every door which we go through on our way to work, every stationery we touch, and every computer or cell phone we use, are held in our hands throughout the day. These are all products of design. Good design can make people feel happy and as if everything is going smoothly. While bad design on the other hand can be frustrating. Imagine encountering a coffee maker and a washing machine that you don't know how to use without resorting to a user manual. An automatic faucet that you never know where to put your hands to make water rush out. And a computer keyboard that is prone to typos. By being surrounded by such objects, your daily life would become a chaotic mess, where every little thing would become a bit of a hassle. Therefore, the book we will introduce today suggests that, Design in everyday life should be human-centered, simple, usable, and as pleasant as possible. If people commit errors while using objects, it's not because they are stupid. Most likely, it is rather because the design itself is faulty, as the designer didn't consider people's needs and mental state as a top priority. This book is not only about design, but also about life. Each of us is a designer of our own lives. All the time we choose the things that surround us, design our rooms, and plan our ways of doing things. Learning to appreciate good design can make you a keen observer, and capable of choosing useful and reasonable products more efficiently. Understanding the manner in which thoughtful designers think can also inspire you in your way of thinking. Donald A. Norman, the author of the book The Design of Everyday Things, has been named by Businessweek as one of the world's most influential designers. He is both a world-famous psychologist and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Previously, he used to serve as a senior director and consultant at numerous world-leading corporations, such as Apple and Hewlett-Packard. His background in engineering and psychology gave him an eye for good design. Since its publication, his book The Design of Everyday Things has been a bestseller for 25 years, and has been translated into 15 languages. It is worth noting that the design philosophy presented in the book are not outdated and are still relevant today. Many companies give the book to employees as a must-read. Some schools have also designated it as a textbook. Some ordinary readers have even changed their career paths to become designers themselves due to this book. As such, this book may also inspire you to make changes in your own life. Today, we'll unlock the major points of the book in three parts. Part 1, What Constitutes a Good Design? Part 2, Reflecting on What Constitutes a Bad Design? Part 3, How to Design Good Products? Part 1, What is Good Design? Let's first see what constitutes a good design. First of all, a good design has two critical features, visibility and understandability. Visibility means that the products should be designed in such a manner that users can understand at a glance where and how to operate them. Take a common example, doors. 
you must have encountered the situation of trying to push open doors that were actually meant to be pulled, or of approaching doors you believed to be automatic, but later finding out were actually regular manual sliding doors. The principle of visibility exists in order to avoid such situations. It requires designers to make sure that people know how to open a door as soon as they see it. For a door that needs to be pulled open, the doorknob should be clearly visible. With doors that need to be pushed open, the vertical plate indicating where to push should be clearly visible. Understandability means that users can recognize the intention of the product, the preset function, and the roles the various devices play at only a glance. In the book, Dr. Norman mentions a washing machine from his friend's house. The washing machine has all the functions you can think of, such as washing clothes of various materials, drying, and different washing modes. It sounds great. However, the husband refuses to use it, and the wife says that she can only remember how to use one of its settings. The reason for this is because the process is so complicated, that it is difficult to understand even with the use of the instruction manual. This washing machine violates the principle of understandability, making it difficult to use. With both the principles of visibility and understandability, daily supplies and home appliances will be easy to understand and easy to use. Using them will prevent people from feeling frustrated. This is the basic requirement for good design, so to speak, and it is not too difficult to achieve. Hearing this, you may wonder, if it is not difficult to achieve these requirements, then why are there so many things that are hard to use in real life? Sometimes it may be due to technical constraints. Other times it may be because producers want to reduce expenditure. But more often than not, it is because designers have forgotten a fundamental concept of design, which is the importance of human-centered design. Human-centered design means that when designing a product, the focus should be on people. Designers need to at first fully understand the user's needs and behaviors, before thinking about how they can use a design to meet them. However, many products are designed by engineers, who although they may have good technical skills lack an understanding of human psychology. As mentioned earlier, the doors that were difficult to open and washing machine that no one liked to use, would be considered to be fine in the eyes of the engineers. In the case of the door, it would always open smoothly if opened in the right way. As for the washing machine, if you press the right series of buttons, it will also work fine. Their functions can be successfully implemented and are correct from a logical perspective. The only problem however is that the human mind is incredibly complex. People have their own cognition, experiences, and may operate in manners not envisioned by engineers. Only designers who understand both technology and human psychology can design good products that people are willing to use. After years of research, Dr. Norman summarized six basic principles of interactive design in order to help designers understand the human mind and make the interaction between people and objects more enjoyable. The first principle is called affordance. It means that a product should be able to show its intended use. For example, a chair has a flat surface that can provide support, where at a glance you know it can be used to sit. A round doorknob implies that it can be rotated, pushed, or pulled. Without the help of an instruction manual, one can figure out how the object is most likely used. The second principle is called signifiers, which serve as hints of affordance. That is they indicate how to operate the device. 
for example, the push and pull sign on a door, or the arrow used in mobile apps to indicate that the screen slides left and right are signifiers. The third principle is called constraints, which means that by adding some restrictions, users can avoid making mistakes in how the product is used, and rapidly operate it correctly. This is not a concept that is itself intuitive, so let's look at a few examples. Constraints can be physical. For example, a square hole can only be connected to something with a square joint, and a big ball cannot fit into a small hole. A constraint can also be cultural. For instance, in Lego, the red light can only be installed at the rear of the vehicle, because it means stop. Constraints can also be logical. For example, when assembling furniture, if there is only one part left and one place to put it, there is a high probability that they are meant to match together. That is the function of constraints. The fourth principle is called mapping, which refers to the correspondence between human actions and their results. To understand this concept, we can use a spatial analogy. For example, we know that when we turn the steering wheel clockwise that we can turn the car to the right. Or when we arrange the room lighting layout, we can arrange the controls in the same pattern as the lights. The fifth principle is called feedback. This means that when a user carries out an action, he should be given consequential feedback in order to let him know that he has caused an effect. Otherwise, he might keep trying. Feedback can come in a variety of forms, including displays, lights, sounds, and so on. Examples of this can be seen in the moving progress bar when downloading files, or the lighting up of a number after pressing the floor button in an elevator. The last principle is called conceptual models. Good design will help users create a clear conceptual model that makes it easy for them to understand the relationship between operations and results without having to understand the complex workings behind the product. For instance, we all know that adjusting the buttons on the refrigerator can control the temperature inside the fridge or through the search function of a computer, we can quickly find files without learning what kind of physical or chemical process is used to achieve this. That concludes the first part of today's bookie, what constitutes a good design. To summarize, a good design has two features, visibility and understandability. A good design is easy to understand, easy to use, and human-centered. At the same time, a good design should understand the user's psychology and meet the six basic principles of interactive design, affordances, signifiers, constraints, mapping, feedback, and conceptual models. Part 2. Reflecting on what constitutes a bad design. Through observation, you will gradually discover that the better a product is designed, the less likely you will notice it. On the contrary, when things are badly designed, they then catch people's attention. From here, let's shift our perspective and look closer at these bad designs. The quality of design can affect more than just a few things in our everyday life. Poor designs can not only bring about a lot of trouble in life, but also terrible consequences. The book cited a statistic that about 75% to 95% of industrial accidents are caused by human error. Would this be due to there being so many careless or confused people in the world? Of course not. The author explicitly reminds us that we must pay careful attention to the term human error. There are many reasons why things go wrong, and people's negligence is just one of them. More often than not, it is actually the result of a bad design. 
Dr. Norman was invited to help investigate an accidental leak at an American nuclear power plant at Three Mile Island. In that accident, a simple mechanical failure was misdiagnosed, leading to the destruction of the reactor, which almost caused a major nuclear leak. The result of the analysis of the accident pointed to human error, and blame was shifted onto the shoulders of the plant's operators. However, Norman's investigation committee found that the nuclear power plant's central control room was poorly designed. At the time of the accident, the operator needed to check two machines, one of which was located to be behind the control panel and was hard to see. Mechanical failure coupled with this grievous design flaw, meant that it was only a matter of time until something went wrong. Many machines in real life are not well designed. They often require people to do something that feels unnatural in order to carry out tasks. For example, having to stay alert for hours, complying with extremely precise control criteria under great pressure, or performing multiple tasks that interfere with each other at the same time. It is easy to make mistakes when the operator can't stay focused or is interrupted. It is naturally easiest to place the blame fully on someone else. However, neither punishment nor condemnation can solve the problem. If we do not find the root cause behind the accident and redesign the product or process, the same mistakes will occur again. So, how do we find the root cause behind the accident, and determine whether it was the human or the design that went wrong? The author's answer is to do a root cause analysis. If someone makes a mistake, it's crucial to determine what caused them to make the mistake. Dig into the underlying causes of the accident, instead of rushing to categorize it as human error. For root cause analysis, there is a method called the five whys. This method originated from the Toyota Motor Corporation in Japan. It was initially part of the Toyota production system to detect problems and improve the quality of products. It is now widely used in various industries. This method is straightforward and easy to use. The important thing is to continuously ask why. Even after you have found a reason, do not stop. Keep asking, why is this the reason? Of course, the question does not need to be asked precisely five times, but you should keep asking until you find the underlying reason. For example, the U.S. Air Force's most advanced aircraft F-22 sustained a plane crash in 2010. If we use the five whys approach to explore the underlying reason for this, this is how the process would look like. Why did the plane crash? Answer is because it was in an uncontrollable dive. Why couldn't the pilot control the plane? Answer is because the pilot failed to start a recovery device in time. Why didn't it start? Answer is because the pilot might have been deficient in oxygen, making him lose consciousness. Why was he deficient in oxygen? In short, keep asking until you know whether the fault lies with the workers or with the design. If it's a problem in the design, find ways to improve it and reduce errors at the root. With that said, the most important principle of design is that they are made to be human-centered. There are so many limitations in the human mind, that making mistakes is part of human nature. From this point of view, the quality of the design correlates with whether or not it acknowledges the fact that humans make mistakes. It also requires designers to optimize their design to accommodate errors, so that the impact of errors is as minimal as possible. Let's look at some common strategies. 
The first is to add constraints and try to prevent errors before they occur. For example, cars require different liquids for maintenance, such as gasoline, lubricating oil, brake fluid, glass cleaner, and so on and so forth. If they are used incorrectly, accidents can easily happen. Therefore, the manufacturers of automobiles design different filling ports located in different places. They use physical constraints by designing the container openings in different sizes and shapes. The liquids are also designed to have different colors. These constraints help to prevent errors. The second is error confirmation. If your actions might cause errors, such as deleting an important file, or closing multiple browser windows, you will be asked to confirm your choice. The more serious the consequences of a mistake, the more complex is the confirmation process. For example, deleting a photo requires only a click to confirm, but deleting an item may require a user password. The third strategy is to offer an undo function, and make it possible to reverse past actions. Just like on your computer, the deleted files don't disappear immediately, but are stored in a folder called the recycle bin. If you regret deleting something, you can undo the action and restore the file. Another typical design tactic is to use a forcing function to limit human error. This helps the user avoid negative consequences as a result of their actions. For example, microwave ovens and some high-voltage equipment will immediately disconnect from their power supply and cease functioning, if someone either opens the door during operation or commits another nefarious error. Alright, you now know that a good design not only needs to be easy to use, but should also take into account that people can make mistakes. We've now finished the second part for today, reflecting on what constitutes a bad design. Let's recap. Many human errors are the result of bad design. If you want to reduce errors at the root cause, it is necessary to conduct root cause analysis to find the real cause of errors. Good designers will optimize the design to accommodate errors, and minimize the probability of committing errors by adding constraints, error confirmation, undo functions, and forcing functions. Part 3 – How to Design Good Products Designers take great pains to design good products. This is not just because they are detail-oriented, but also because they have a particular way of thinking that helps them create better. This way of thinking is called design thinking. So finally, let's take a look at how designers use design thinking to design good products. The first secret of design thinking is to solve the right problems. In the book, Dr. Norman mentioned several times one of his principles in consulting, don't start by solving the problems which the clients ask. This is because in his view, these problems are never real nor target the underlying issue. Good designers don't rush to tackle surface problems. They first try to understand what the real problem is. For example, customers may say that they want safer and more usable locks and keys, but their concern isn't about the locks and keys themselves. What they really want is a way to ensure that only someone with authorization can open something that is locked. As such, what designers need to do is not to change the physical structure of the lock and key, but to find a better solution. If we think of it in this way, we can find more available solutions, a coded lock is secure and does not require a key. Wireless sensor technology is also convenient for options like swiping a card or using a remote control. Biometric identification can also use fingerprints, voice, 
and irises to unlock a door. You see, this is the difference between tackling problems at the superficial level and the source. Good designers view questions posed by customers as suggestions, and take them as a starting point to find the right problem. They start to design after they have identified a customer's real needs. You must be wondering what their design process looks like. The entire design process consists of four steps. Each step embodies the philosophy of human-centered design, as such the process is also called a human-centered design process. Step 1 is to observe the user. Before deciding what kind of product to develop, the designer will find the target users of the product, then observe and analyze their behaviors, and see what obstacles they will encounter in their daily operation habits. If you produce kitchenware, you must first go and see how housewives use them. If you produce children's products, go to a place where you can observe many children. If you want to sell products to other countries, you should go to those specific regions, and see if there are any environmental and cultural differences. Without doing this, you may be able to develop a product with a great idea. However, it will likely not solve any real issues that users have, and may thus fail in the market. Step 2 is to stimulate creativity. After observation, the design requirements are basically determined, and the next step is to find a creative solution. There are many ways to stimulate creativity. The most common one is brainstorming, where the entire design team put their heads together and come up with their own ideas. In the process, you need to follow some simple rules. For example, be creative. Don't get stuck on one or two ideas, try not to criticize other people's ideas, and don't laugh at dumb questions, because many ideas with potential have almost always sounded crazy at first. Step 3 is quick proofing. The only way to know if an idea is sound is to test it. For this reason, in the early stage of product design, designers need to quickly make some sample models to check whether the idea is reasonable and feasible. Even if there is no way to make a real sample, a sketch, a presentation, or a paper model, can also reveal underlying problems you would otherwise not be able to detect without this process. As we mentioned previously, step 4 is testing. After making a sample, designers will find target users and let them use the samples in a natural environment. They then observe the problems they will encounter and gather their opinions. This part should not be neglected. Once, when Dr. Norman evaluated a new product for a computer company, he found that when he used a keyboard to enter data, it was difficult to distinguish between two keys. If he pressed the wrong key, the information entered a few minutes ago would be lost. When he pointed out the problem to the designer, he was told that he was the only one complaining about it. In fact, the secretary of that company often made similar mistakes, but did not report it as they felt it was their fault, not the faulty design of the product. If the designer had seriously tested it at the time, or at least invited other people to try it, they would have realized that this was a real problem. All right, you now know about design thinking and what it takes to design good products. We've now finished the third and final part for today, how to design good products. Let's review. Good designer's primary principle is to identify the right problem and use a human-centered design process. The human-centered design process is to observe users, stimulate creativity, do quick proofing, and testing. Good designers will cycle through these four steps several times, 
making small improvement each time, gradually iterating and perfecting the product until they are satisfied. All the good products around you are designed in this way. Alright, at this point, you now have an idea of how a good design is conceived. Finally, let's summarize what we've learned today. First, we learned what constitutes a good design. A good design should be human-centered and put users' needs first. In their specific form of presentation, they need to be visible and understandable, so that people can understand them at a glance and use them easily. At the same time, a good design also needs to understand the psychology of users, and meet the six basic principles of interactive design, affordances, signifiers, constraints, mapping, feedback, and conceptual models. Second, we reflected on what constitutes a bad design. They will not only bring troubles to daily life, but may also have terrible consequences. With root cause analysis, you can determine whether the source of trouble is caused by a person or a flaw in the design. If it is due to problems in a design, we can improve it by adding constraints, error confirmation, undo functions, and forcing functions. Finally, we learned how to design good products. Good designer's primary principle is to identify the right problem and use human-centered design process when designing products. They observe the users, inspire creativity, use quick proofing, and finally test the product. They continuously repeat the process until a satisfactory product is designed. In fact, envisioning a design and design thinking are not processes exclusive to designers. Anyone who likes to observe, think, or who are engaged in creative work can consciously shape their own design thinking. Through receiving new knowledge from different fields, we enrich our cognitive coordination system with which we process the world. If we understand things around us from another angle, we can experience a different awareness. After listening to this bookie, we hope that you can also try to observe life with the eyes of a designer, and create things while using the philosophy of design thinking.